This is a Federal News Network podcast. VA's Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection is at a crucial moment in its short lifetime. The House is considering new legislation with the goal of improving the office's performance and effectiveness. And the Senate is hopeful new political leadership will right the ship at OAWP. Current leaders at the VA Accountability Office itself say things have improved. But whistleblowers aren't so sure. We get more now from Federal News Network's Nicola Grisco. Acting leaders at the VA Office of Accountability and Whistleblower Protection say things are better in recent years, at least better than 2019, when the VA Inspector General said OAWP failed to protect whistleblowers and often misinterpreted its statutory functions. OAWP says it completed 350 investigations and made 99 recommendations within the last year. That includes 40 recommendations for senior leader misconduct, 29 for supervisor whistleblower retaliation, and 30 non-disciplinary recommendations and corrective actions for whistleblowers. That's certainly better than previous years, when OAWP recommended seven senior leaders for discipline during an 18-month period. But VA itself has only implemented about half of those disciplinary or corrective recommendations from the last year. Congressman Tracy Mann is the ranking member of the VA Oversight and Investigation Subcommittee. I learned of two recent instances where OAWP investigators felt they had an open and shut case, but VA leaders declined to act on the recommendations, citing other circumstances. This means one of two things. One, either the OAWP recommendations were sound, but their poor reputation inside the agency leads VA officials to disregard their opinions, or two, OAWP's investigations were flawed and the recommendations should not have been made. OEWP says more VA employees are making disclosures to the office, and it sees that as a sign that more people feel comfortable going to OAWP. The VA Inspector General says it's also getting fewer complaints from employees about how OEWP is handling their cases. Congressman Chris Pappas is the chairman of the VA subcommittee. To be perfectly blunt, VA had wholly neglected its duty to whistleblowers for years and years. So where are we now? OAWP leadership and staff deserve credit for implementing the Inspector General's recommendations from 2019. Leadership hired needed staff, conducted training, and they've reduced the backlog of investigations. These are all good signs of improvement. However, what does this really mean for the whistleblowers themselves? My office continues to hear from employees who are confused and frustrated by OAWP's procedures and communications. Pappas and other committee members say they still hear, though, from whistleblowers and even OAWP employees themselves, who say they've experienced retaliation at the department. Whistleblowers also say VA often takes too long to settle their cases and make them whole. Congressman Mark Decano is the chairman of the full VA committee. The current situation is a merry-go-round of frustration. VA whistleblowers are forced to blow the whistle again about how VA treats whistleblowers even after confirmed findings of retaliation. Now, I joined Chairman Pappas in sending a letter in March to Secretary McDonough about the need to ensure that VA follows through on its promises to whistleblowers. I look forward to a productive exchange with the new general counsel and soon about how best to fix the situation. But whistleblowers should not need a joint letter from congressional leaders to receive the attention they deserve. Trust is hard to build and easy to lose. 
OEWP says it's looking for trends that might illustrate why VA acts on certain disciplinary actions and doesn't act on others. OEWP doesn't have the authority, though, to enforce the recommendations it makes. And Congress and other oversight groups agree, well, that's part of the problem. Melissa Wasser is the policy counsel for the Project on Government Oversight. The office has done a lot of the hard work over the past few years with good intentions, but even when they substantiate allegations, they're still not holding people accountable for their actions. And so that lack of enforcement is really hampering the agency. The House committee is considering two pieces of legislation. Pappas's bill would give OAWP its own general counsel. Oversight and whistleblower advocacy groups say that would help the office maintain more independence, since OAWP relies today on VA's general counsel to provide legal advice. Mann is working on a second bill. His legislation would eliminate OAWP's authority to investigate allegations of senior leader misconduct and poor performance, plus certain whistleblower retaliation complaints. The bill instead would transfer that authority to the Office of Special Counsel. Here's Mann. Unfortunately, I do not believe OAWP can succeed under its current structure. No matter how many layers, how much money, or how many new authorities Congress may give it, the Assistant Secretary will still report to the Secretary and will never truly be independent. I want to be clear. I'm in no way disparaging the hard work of the folks at OAWP. They deserve an environment where they can concede, but something has to change. But VA employees can and already do file whistleblower retaliation complaints with OSC. Elizabeth McMurray is the chief of OSC's Retaliation and Disclosure Unit. As far as how much overlap there is between the individuals right now who go solely to OAWP and don't come to OSC, you know, I, we don't have that data, so I couldn't estimate how many more cases would be coming to us. But again, I would emphasize that right now, VA employees can come to OSC. So this legislation doesn't give them the additional choice of going to OSC because that that choice or the proposed legislation, that choice already exists. Committee members don't have consensus yet on reform legislation, but they're working on it. Here's Pappas. This is an issue that we are not giving up on or walking away from. And I think, you know, the legislative drafts that are out there are just the beginning of the conversation of some of the remedies, you know, that, you know, will be considered as we move forward. And I think your comments have been very helpful and instructive to us in understanding what makes sense, what our whistleblower whistleblowers are experiencing, and how we can best make sure that they are protected moving forward. So I know the subcommittee has a lot of work in front of us, and we do hope we can find a bipartisan consensus on this legislation, and we will work in that direction. Meantime, many in Congress are hopeful new political leadership might right the ship at OAWP. President Biden nominated Marianne Donaghy to be the new OAWP assistant secretary. She's a former federal prosecutor, accountant, and teacher, and she launched an inspector general's office for the Philadelphia School District. She says she has three goals in mind for OAWP. First, it's to lead the office with integrity, with objectivity, and with excellence in work product. Secondly, to communicate the importance of whistleblower protection, both internally and externally. But tying back to that first goal, again, to be vigilant in executing on that principle with excellence in work product. And finally, I believe that whistleblower protection for misconduct and that sort of thing, that's a given in an organization. It's the minimum that an organization needs to be fully functional. But an organization can really not truly meet its mission unless it protects whistleblowers and cultivates a culture where employees can speak up 
and make good change. Nicole Ligrisco, Federal News Network. Check out Nicole's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision, 
that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values, but the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. 
and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet. And said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick? Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.